And then when they ran out of ammunition, they moved in even closer and they began to use hatchets and butcher knives. So this is really not an industrial form of killing. In many cases, they're literally hacking into children's heads and being spattered by the brains spraying out on their faces. to say after this week's guest i'm pretty embarrassed and if you live in america you should be too while america has pointed the finger with disgust at genocides conducted by isil german and bosnian powers for example we have yet to come to grips with our own holocaust the several millions of native american families that we slaughtered enslaved and tortured in order to occupy and control their land and resources this invasion And genocide doesn't even show up at all in our culture. From classrooms to memorials to even Wikipedia, we don't even recognize it as a genocide, even though it meets every criteria. We've isolated ourselves from this narrative, from this responsibility, and even from the remaining Indian population themselves, who we cast off into camps far from us. Even our national conversation on racism doesn't include Native Americans. While the people of Germany have their Nazi past front and center in classrooms, socially, with memorials, and with political support, we, as a nation, have continued somehow to escape this same atonement. And isn't it time? Much like The importance of facing your demons as an individual. This country needs a big revision to our national story and the blind levels of patriotism that we smack the world with. A humble country would be a stronger one. We've seen when the opposite happens and only a social movement could turn the tide. This week's guest, UCLA professor Benjamin Madley, documents the state-sanctioned genocide of the California Native American population like no one else has. In this week's very emotional conversation, we approach a subject far too neglected, our own government-sponsored ethnic cleansing. This is Grow Big Always. I'm Sam Lawrence. Before we get into the book, I, I have to say and admit, really, this the whole thing, the whole topic, um, and even thinking about American Indians again since I was a kid was a wake-up call for me. Because I remember, probably like most people, being in school and learning about Indians, and not the kind of early part of your education where it's that ridiculous pilgrims and Indians having a Thanksgiving meal story, but like later on in in high school, I don't even remember which part, but I remember being older. And the narrative went something like, you know, our great country of pioneers had this really natural, organic migration westward. And we spent some money on some 
this this Louisiana purchase thing, which seemed almost like we bought this empty plot of land, and then we got some more land for some something called the Mexican session, which sounded to me a little bit like a Hispanic Dr. Phil or something. And and then it was kind of all part of this manifest destiny thing, which um, was some right of ours. And I'm sure that a lot of us have that education. And since then, since school, we see the Hollywood depiction of, you know, savages scalping poor white men. And so here I am reading your book and prepping for the interview and I'm just jaw dropped while I'm reading it. And at the same time I'm reading it, everyone is memorializing the the 15th anniversary of 9-11 at the same time. And I'm just like realizing that our country has had its own Holocaust, its own genocide and swept it under the rug. And there's really no memorialization or national consciousness around this like there is the Holocaust in Germany. So why is it that we still have this so swept under our consciousness carpet as a country. One of the big reasons that we don't talk much about the catastrophic Native American population decline that took place in this country is that we are quite wedded in politics and in public discourse to the notion of American exceptionalism. That is the idea that the evolution of the conquest and colonization of the United States and its subsequent life up to today are somehow exceptional and took place and continue to take place outside the rest of world history, such that we're quite happy to put into the public educational standards lines requiring teachers to address the Armenian genocide, the Holocaust, uh, and, and things like the rape of Nanking. But there's a real reluctance to talk about the United States as part of that violent, ongoing imperialism in world history. The numbers are quite staggering. So like California Indians, native peoples across the continental United States suffered a really devastating population decline following the arrival of newcomers. So before contact, scholars estimate that perhaps 5 million or many more indigenous people inhabited what are now the continental United States. But by the year 1900, federal census takers counted fewer than 250,000 survivors. So what we have here is one of the largest population catastrophes in world history. And yet, while it is hotly debated in academia, there's very little in public discourse to address what caused this catastrophe. So diseases, colonialism, and other factors all played important roles. But what I began to think about as I was working on this project of California Indian history was more was something more sinister also to blame. What do you mean by sinister? I'm interested there. Well, that is what led me to begin to think about the question of intent and actions. And not only intent as expressed in written documents or pronouncements, but intent as expressed in a pattern of violent actions toward indigenous peoples. So my the beginning of my personal journey into this area was uh, coming out of the fact that I spent much of my childhood in Karuk country, Karuk Indian country, in far northern California, near a remote logging town called Happy Camp on the Klamath River. And to be clear, you're a white dude. 
I'm not an Indian. I am a pale male from Yale. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we were living uh, back to nature. We were living on the family ranch in a log cabin with no electricity, no telephone. We had an outhouse. And I was finding arrowheads in the neighbor's potato fields and thinking about what that meant. But what was really vivid to me was my father's work with Karuk people uh, in the surrounding area, primarily through the schools, but also in his private practice uh, as a therapist. And so I saw firsthand at a quite young age this ongoing conflict between natives and newcomers, not only over issues like the gold mine, which was spilling uh, toxic effluents into creeks flowing into the Klamath River, but also issues like the damming of the Klamath River, which was causing a crash in the salmon and trout populations, fish that were very important to Karuk people and to all the indigenous people on the Klamath River. Uh, when I was a child, that was the beginning of the many tribes that live on the Klamath River beginning to protest the dam and beginning to organize for its removal. There were also issues like forest management. Uh, the U.S. Forest Service was trying to suppress all fire uh, and at that time. And indigenous people in California for thousands of years have used fire-based land management in order to maximize and modify crop yields uh, and to maximize the amount of forage available for game like deer and elk and the like. But there was also a lot of very obvious prejudice growing up there. Uh, Indian people were pulled over, as they used to say, for driving while Indian. And also the, the issues of alcoholism uh, were quite obvious to me. So at a pretty young age, I began to think about what this meant to colonize a place. Uh, yeah, you must have been looking around that kind of reality and realizing that there were these conflicting layers it reminds me a little bit of i think i may have mentioned it to you right before we recorded but i saw a documentary recently called the look of silence where the indonesian government sanctioned the killing of i don't know if it's a million or maybe it's more uh, of their people where they just kind of arbitrarily used the permission of calling them communists or labeling them somehow right. and then just systematically destroyed them. And all of those people are still in power. And so they still celebrate that massacre. They still openly and actively tell stories about it and kind of glamorize it. And it's the story of, you know, this not too dissimilar from what you're talking about. There's this person who grew up kind of realizing that's a bunch of BS and, and this is not, really the story of what happened and he confronts them. So your book in many ways confronts even just the California piece, let alone the rest of the country. One of the reasons that we don't know very much about California Indian history in this state has to do with the state education standards. So the one time that public school teachers are required to address California Indian history is in the fourth grade. And typically that happens around teaching a unit on the California missions, the first of which was established in 1769 and 
They stretch from San Diego up to Sonoma, as you probably know. And one of the key things that the unit usually involves is building a model of the mission. So, and it's often done with sugar cubes. I think it's not by mistake that the fourth grade is the place where California Indian history is taught because there's only so much of this horror, so much of this profound pain that you can present to a nine or 10 year old child. Uh, So one of the things that I hope the book might encourage is a rethinking of the state standards and the presentation of a unit on the genocide that took place in California under U.S. rule later, perhaps in high school, in the same way that the state requires the teaching of the Armenian genocide or the Holocaust or the rape of Nanking. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that's interesting to me, learning a little bit more about the state of the way in which Indian history is presented across the nation is that it really varies state by state. So there are places like California where the truth of what happened in the history is almost entirely suppressed. But there are other states where the state legislature has decided that they want to teach American Indian history and maybe in a more honest fashion. I can say that when I picked up your book, the first thing I realized is it's it's actually not as it just only focused on California, but it's also looking at what is it around 18... Is it 1846 to 1873? So like, what is that, 20-something, almost 30 years? Mm -hmm. And I realized, geez, this is just a slice, you know, of really what happened. And what's cool about the book, and among many things, is it takes something like what happened to Native Americans and really personalizes them. I guess there's that famous Stalin quote that the death of one man is a tragedy and the death of millions is a statistic. And I think we've moved so far away and we think of things just kind of in this super statistical way. But I mean, even when you pick up your book, which is pretty hefty, I realize actually it's a normal sized book, but it's got this caboose of an appendix that is chilling. It's like half the book in it. It's kind of a record of the of the murders. So it's everything from like, I guess, unspecified numbers to larger than five to really big numbers. And you flip through it And you see just kind of like this haphazard commentary on each one of these killings. And it feels like someone's, it's almost like someone's chronicling the amount of bugs they exterminated. And so how did you even pull all that together? So it began by thinking about the fact that between 1846 and 1870, California's Indian population crashed from maybe 150,000 to 30,000 people. And I knew that diseases and forced removals and dislocation and starvation had caused many of these deaths. But I was also early on becoming aware as I was pouring through the archives that this near annihilation of California Indians was not the unavoidable result of two civilizations coming into contact for the first time. And as I moved deeper into the research, it became quite clear to me that this was genocide sanctioned and facilitated by California officials. And then I began to think, how could we have a memorial to this? And one day I was walking through the Woolsey Rotunda at Yale, where I was a graduate student, and I was looking at these white marble plinths that are all around the rotunda, and they list the names of every Yale graduate who's fallen in all of the U.S. conflicts, including the colonial ones before nationhood. 
And I started to think about Maya Lin's Vietnam Memorial as well. And I thought, maybe I could create a kind of a memorial like that to try in some small way, at least on paper, to capture the magnitude of this catastrophe, its pain and the ongoing power of its trauma echoing into the present. So I couldn't get that many names, but wherever possible, I wanted to record the names. And then what I began to think about is, if you imagine, Sam, in your own life, your experience of losing a loved one, you know that it's a massive event in your life. It leaves a hole, and it takes a long time to get over that and and heal from that. And in some ways, maybe one never does. So for me, recording all of these killings became very important, not as a kind of antiquarian or quantitative exercise, but rather as a way to try to understand the magnitude of this loss and to dignify these deaths, to to dignify these people's lives who now are largely forgotten. And I hope that this research will be these massive appendices that, you know, stretch on for almost 200 pages, that these will be of utility, not only to researchers in the future, but also to educators in California and beyond, and particularly to indigenous peoples as they try to understand their own history and how they arrived at the place where they are today. What's a genocide versus just something else or even like a holocaust that's a very good question let me talk for a minute about the definition of genocide that i'm using so neither the federal government nor the california state government has acknowledged that the california indian catastrophe fits the two-part legal definition of genocide set forth by the united nations genocide convention in 1948 so what does that convention say first perpetrators have to demonstrate their intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. So that's the first component of genocide. The second part is action. Second, they must commit one of the five genocidal acts listed in the UN Genocide Convention. And those include killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life, calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and finally, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. The reason that I chose this particular definition is that this is a convention that was arrived at unanimously by the United Nations General Assembly, and if you know anything about the UN, you know that's rather unusual but also because this is the most widely accepted international definition, and it is part of a growing body of international case law. This is the definition of genocide uh, that is currently being used by the International Criminal Court. It is the definition that is being used uh, in Phnom Penh today for the genocide trials of former Khmer Rouge members, and it is also the definition that has been used in trials of uh, Serbians and Rwandans associated with genocide in Yugoslavia and genocide in Rwanda. So it's really the most widely accepted definition, and therefore I think the most appropriate one to apply to history. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we can retroactively try uh, people who are now dead for genocide, but I do think that it's a useful tool. It allows us to compare events across time and space in history in order to understand how these things happen and in order to recognize what they mean. It seems like at least it would put us on the kind of playing field that you mentioned we seem to think we're not on when we look around at the rest of the world. So if we can have a common vocabulary around it, it might be a step in coming to terms with this crazy denial that we have. And I, I think it's pretty important, and it's something else in reading your book, that if you could spend a minute just painting a picture for folks, I mean, you're talking about really a time period that maybe some of our grandparents or maybe their parents not that long ago. So, I mean, Indians were obviously here for far, far longer than that. But can you paint a picture of like, what was life like before we started to really meddle for these folks? So, you know, a lot of people may be imagining they're living in teepees. These Indians are these stoic, bloodthirsty people. But what did life really look like? What did they live in and what was their day-to-day -day life like? Well, one of the things to understand about California Indians uh, before contact with Europeans was that these were incredibly diverse peoples. Uh, I'll just talk about language as one way to get into understanding that diversity. So scholars estimate that before contact with Spanish colonizers, there were about 310,000 indigenous peoples living here. And okay. they carefully managed their environment, as I said earlier on, uh, using fire. Um, and they hunted, they gathered, they fished, they farmed. And as a result of their genius uh, for living in the California environment, this region became the most densely populated area north of Mexico in North America. And if you think about languages, it's pretty amazing. So you have about 310,000 people, and they're speaking just a dazzling array of tongues. Uh, Pre-contact North America was, as linguists acknowledge, a diverse linguistic landscape. And indigenous people here spoke languages that can be classified into 50 different language families, which is quite a lot. Just to put that into context, in contrast, Linguists classify Europe's languages into as few as three families. So amid hmm. this already varied linguistic landscape, pre-contact California stands out as one of the most linguistically diverse places on earth. California Indians spoke perhaps 100 separate languages classified by linguists into at least five different language families. Now, how different were they? Scholars think that they... they say that they were as mutually unintelligible, some of them, as English is to Chinese. Wow. So they're speaking these scores of different languages, and they're divided up into dozens of cultural and political units. So anthropologists recognize at least 60 major tribes in California. That's quite a lot. And those 60 can in turn be divided into many more linguistic and tribal subgroups. For example, up near where you live, anthropologists have classified the Pomo people north of the San Francisco Bay Area into seven distinct subgroups. 
another group, for example, the Yana, Ishi's people, they can be subdivided into five different groups. California's many subgroups can then be divided further into about 500 different individual bands of indigenous people. And the reason for that is that each village or sometimes a village constellation tended to act as its own politically and economically autonomous entity. So the indigenous peoples of California were highly independent, truly varied in their languages and political structures, but loosely bound together to larger tribal groups by shared languages, shared cultures, and shared customs. But they're also tied together by systems of exchange. If you look, for example, at a modern map of California, and you look at the interstates, you've got I-5 and 10 and I-80, and then you've got the state highway system. Well, that quite well maps on to indigenous trading routes that are thousands of years old. So people are trading acorns and beans and berries and fish and meat, um, all kinds of different things, volcanic mm -hmm. glass for knives and arrowheads. And this is tying people together in a wider California Indian community. But one of the reasons uh, that genocide happened here, I think that it happened so quickly, was that the decentralization of California Indian peoples meant that they didn't have the political structures or the kind of warrior cultures that might have facilitated uh, a higher level of resistance. Another factor right. would be horses. Most California Indian people in 1846, when Americans arrive, are not equestrians. But the peoples who are equestrians, like, for example, the Modocs, they tend to be able to resist uh, longer. And were they living in teepees back then? Because it didn't seem like it in your book. Well, the architectural variation is something that I'm quite interested in. Uh, you know, some people are living um, in something somewhat like a teepee. There are wooden structures uh, over which skins are stretched. But there are also people, mm, for example, the Nomlaki, who are living in houses that are subterranean to uh, try to moderate the temperature inside the house, cool right. during the heat of summer in the Sacramento Valley, uh, warmer in the winter when snows are falling. But if you went up into, for example, the northwestern portion of the state in what is now Del Norte or Humboldt County, you would find people living in rectangular redwood houses with peaked roofs that look very much uh, like a Western European kind of house. Uh, so the, the, the architecture is a good way of seeing the incredible diversity of indigenous peoples in the state. And then here comes the government and that westward expansion piece we talked about in the very, very beginning. So how is it that elected officials, I think as you put it, architected this annihilation? Can you give some examples sure, sure. of how they sanctioned it? So California's first legislature convened in 1850, and one of its first orders of business was banning all Indians from voting, uh, barring those who are one half of Indian blood or more from giving evidence for or against whites in criminal cases, 
and denying Indians the right to serve as jurors. And that happens in the first few months of California's first elected legislature. Uh, these same legislators later banned Indians from serving as attorneys. So when you think about it, in combination, these laws largely shut California Indian people out of participation in and protection by the state's legal system. This amounted then to a virtual grant of impunity to those who attacked them. That same year, also in 1850, state legislators endorsed unfree Indian labor by legalizing white custody of Indian minors and Indian prisoner leasing. And 10 years later, they extended that act to legalize indenture of any Indian. So these unfree labor laws triggered a boom in violent kidnappings that separated men and women during peak reproductive years, both of which accelerated California Indian population decline dramatically. And some Indians were treated simply as disposable laborers. One lawyer recalled down here in LA that Los Angeles had a slave mart and that thousands of honest, useful people were absolutely destroyed in this way. And to get a sense of those numbers, here in LA, just between 1850 and 1870, LA's Indian population fell from over 3,600 to just 219. But more directly connected to the killing portion of genocide, I think it's not an exaggeration to say that California legislators also established a state-sponsored killing machine. Governors here called out or authorized no fewer than two dozen separate state militia expeditions between 1850 and 1861, which killed at least 1,340 California Indian people. Now, if that seems like those militias might have been rogue units, the fact is that state legislators also passed three bills in the 1850s that raised up to $1.51 million, a great deal of money at that time, to fund these operations for past and future Indian hunting militia uh, units. So by demonstrating that the state would not punish Indian killers, but instead financially reward them, these state militia expeditions helped to inspire vigilantes at the same time to kill at least 6,460 California Indian people. But the federal government is also involved in this process. The U.S. Army and their auxiliaries killed at least 1,600 California Indians between 1846 and 1873. And here, too, state legislators supported the killing process, passing a bill in 1863 allowing the state of California to raise $600,000 to encourage California men to enlist in the army. And at the same time, of course, state politicians and U.S. senators stopped the establishment of permanent federal reservations in California, thus denying California Indians land exposing them to increased danger. Now, one of the things that people always want to know about with the question of genocide is where is the intent? Because that's part of the definition. When you look at the documents, it's quite surprising that state endorsement of genocide was not really hidden. In the year 1851, California Governor Peter Burnett, who's the first civilian elected governor of the state, declared that a war of extermination will continue to be waged until the Indian race becomes extinct. The following year, a California senator in the Senate in Washington, D.C., went further. 
He told fellow U.S. senators that California Indians will be exterminated before the onward march of the white man. And he argued that the interest of the white man demands their extinction. Interestingly, in 1858, that man, John Weller, becomes the governor of the state of California. So there's really a lot of ways that we can see that this was a case of genocide, not only by the killing of between 9,000 and 16,000 or more individuals during this time, uh, but also through things like the enforcement of starvation conditions at federal reservations. So there's just this hardcore racism going on that is sanctioned by our government in California and obviously in other states as well. And from a social narrative perspective, what happened? I mean, can you paint a picture of these militia that are moving into these different parts of California? They're seeing the life that you just painted for these different tribes in California who are living peacefully before all of a sudden these folks show up. And then there's this systematic murdering that's happening everywhere. And society is, because of the us and them thing, just going along with it? Is that what's going on? Well, there was resistance. Every place that I could find a newspaper editor questioning the morality, calling for the protection of California Indians, every place where I found someone writing about the terrible conditions on federal reservations or questioning the expenditure of these huge amounts of money on the hunting of Indians. I recorded those because I wanted to show that there were conflicts and that there were people at these times in these places who did see that this was morally wrong. But sadly, the fact is that a fundamentally anti-Indian state legislature elected and supported by a broadly anti-Indian public won the day. And white Californian consensus, unfortunately, was then supported by elected officials in Washington, D.C., by congressmen and senators who voted to reimburse the state of California for almost all of the money that they spent on Indian hunting, while at the same time constantly ratcheting down the amount of money that they were allocating for the feeding and care of indigenous people held on federal Indian reservations in the state of California. Some of the stories that are in the book about the kinds of murders that really occurred, it's just hard to get your, your head around. I mean, it's such a gruesome, gruesome, horrible account. And, you know, I think so many people still have the Hollywood version of what these conflicts really look like, but it'd be curious to have you explain, like, what, what would it look like when, I don't know, whether it's the military or a militia or just, you know, just people who maybe weren't connected to that would have these conflicts where murder was happening. Well, one of the one of the things that got me thinking about this was I did the research chronologically, so I started in the earliest phases, and I came across this huge massacre perpetrated by John C. Fremont and his right-hand man, Kit Carson. And uh, one of the things that happened again and again was that massacres and attacks were catalyzed 
by rumors. So they're leading a group of U.S. troops uh, in the upper Sacramento River Valley and some U.S. citizens who are colonizers there. This is still during the time of Mexican rule. Bring them a rumor that there's a group of Indian people gathered on the banks of the Sacramento River near what is now Redding and that they are threatening them. And Carson and Fremont arrive with their men and make no attempt to negotiate. And instead, they launch a preemptive genocidal massacre based on, uh, based on a rumor. Um, the Wintu people who were gathered there tried to protect themselves. But as so often happened, these attacks began with long-range rifle fire. Mm-hmm. So Kit Carson and Fremont and their men were armed with rifles uh, that could hit and kill Wintu people without being anywhere near the range of the arrows that the Wintu people had. And then once the rifles or uh, muskets would get too hot, then they would close in and begin to use small arms, in this case, uh, pistols. And then when they ran out of ammunition, they moved in even closer and they began to use uh, hatchets and butcher knives. So this is really uh, not an industrial form of killing. In many cases, uh, you know, they're literally hacking into children's heads and being spattered by the brains spraying out on their faces. And in this particular case, they really hunted everybody down. People tried to flee, and Carson went after them on horseback. They tried to swim across the river, and as they swam across, they were shot. And so we know from the eyewitness count that a great number of people were killed that day. It's very hard to research and to write about this. There were many times when I would be reading the microfilm reels or holding a very old journal and the tears would come because it is very difficult to imagine the profound inhumanity that could motivate someone to do this kind of thing, uh, to kill women and children and elders mercilessly and relentlessly it's hard to it's hard to fathom it really really is and it's embarrassing as hell that it happened and that even more that we're not more actually just like the fact that we don't have any consciousness around this thing at all as a country and we we do not have the same level of attention on it that we do a lot of other things in the country just blows me away. I know that as I looked into this, the, what the government uh, offered some sort of silent apology in 2010 as some part of a, what is it, a defense procurement bill that went through Congress, I read. But it's like right. these, you know, mouse fart things that don't actually, it's not a social movement. It's just signing things on pieces of paper. So I guess I come back to my very, very first question, and I don't know that it's that easy to answer, which is, what's it going to take? You know, what's it really going to take 
for us as a country to embrace the past. Let's let's talk a little bit about what is at stake. As you can imagine, uh, I spent a lot of time with California Indian communities uh, during this process, and I regularly teach California Indian undergrads and grad students here at UCLA. And so I kind of have some questions that I've been thinking about, and one of them is about public apology. Um, will state or federal officials tender public apologies? And, and there are some precedents for this. Uh, President Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush apologized in the 80s for the relocation and internment of over 120,000 Japanese Americans during the Second World War. Many of these people were California citizens. And directly connected to apologies uh, are reparations. They're a subordinate but very important issue. Uh, should state or federal officials offer compensation along the lines of the more than $1.6 billion that Congress has paid out to Japanese Americans and their heirs uh, who suffered forcible internment? Another possibility is that California officials might decrease or altogether eliminate their cut of California Indians' annual gaming revenues, which are quite substantial. They totaled $7.3 billion in 2014. That means that many millions of dollars in the state's budget come from their cut of California Indian gaming. And decreasing, uh, decreasing this might be an effective way of paying reparations. Another question is, should the state return control of California to California Indian communities of state lands where genocidal events took place? And also, should the state stop commemorating the supporters and perpetrators of this genocide? People like Peter Burnett, Kit Carson, John C. Fremont. And as I said before, will genocide against California Indians join the Armenian genocide and the Holocaust in public school curricula and public discourse? Now, these are very important questions. What's beyond doubt is that the state and federal government should acknowledge that the genocide took place in California. But ultimately, I think that it's going to be up to California Indian people working in concert with everyone in California to figure out how to address these issues because they are really legion. You know, the, the state's legacy of genocide remains hidden in plain sight, and we continue to commemorate these people all up and down the state. When you look at some of the genocides in other parts of the world and what governments have had to do as reparations, as not just apologies, but the reparations and some sort of memorialization or change in who we're celebrating or national conversation and education. I mean, is there some playbook where we would perform a certain way or, or guide them to do it a certain way that we could apply to ourselves? Well, the ongoing German public educational and government response to the Holocaust is really the best example, I think, of how a state and a society uh, can atone for uh, genocide in their past. It's very much part of public discourse in Germany. It's definitely part of education, uh, and it's memorialized. It's not perfect, but it is probably the the best model. I, you know, I do think that addressing the complex legacies of genocide in California is an ongoing process, but there are things that are happening uh, that are positive. Um, there has been the revision of official landmark plaques uh, 
at places like the location of the 1850 Bloody Island Massacre. Um, and there's also, there's a lot that's been done by California Indian communities themselves to raise awareness. Um, for example, there's an annual uh, Talawa commemoration of the Talawa Candlelit Vigil at the site of the 1853 Yontocket Massacre. There's the yearly Weot Vigil to commemorate the 1860 Tuluat Massacre. There's the annual Gnome Colt Walk from Chico, California to Round Valley, California to retrace the steps of the horrific 1863 Concow Maidu Trail of Tears. And there's also been a substantial amount of renaming. Um, Peter H. Burnett Elementary School, not far from here in Long Beach, was recently renamed. Uh, San Francisco's Burnett Child Development Center was also renamed. But, you know, it's still possible to drive on Burnett Street there in San Francisco or Weller <laughs> yeah. Way in Sacramento or Fremont Street in San Diego uh, or to drive over Kit Carson Pass. <laughs> it's all around yeah. us. So we have a tremendous amount of work to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I think those are important to live under the umbrella of something a little bigger. And to me, it seems like those are all good steps, but the narrative that we have, right? Like we all live in narratives and the narrative that this country lives in, sometimes I guess it starts with the way we tell the story to kids and make it part of the discourse for folks. I'm sure that people that live in Germany have a very different education of what happened there and it to me it i don't know it just feels like it's missing a level of organization and effort and urgency and narrative that other social movements in this country either have or have had and so it would be amazing if there was a way to get this higher on the on the list because it would be so important and so positive actually for the American balloon to get a little popped and have some humility around the fact that as we're popping around this immigration issue and looking at all of these other issues in the campaign this year, <laughs> that we remember that for the most part, as we look around, unless you're on an Indian reservation or unless you're soloing out people here and there, most everyone here is here because they kicked other people out in a very, very violent way. And, uh, you know, that's the only thing that I can could figure out how to hope for. And I wonder if, when you think about it, I mean, is there even precedent for a country where there's been such a kind of swept under the rug history to get around the corner on something like that and actually make it part of their consciousness? Well, I think that there is. I think that Germany did not acknowledge this in an active public way for decades after the Holocaust, uh, but then they began to do so later. So there, there are precedents for addressing this. I'm not a policymaker, but I can tell you after 10 years of working on this why I think acknowledging genocide in California is so important. First of all, decency. Decency demands that even long after the deaths of these tens of thousands of California Indian people, we preserve and tell the truth about what befell them so that their memory can be honored and the repetition of similar crimes around the world deterred. And the second issue is justice. Even long after the perpetrators have vanished, we have got to document the crimes 
that they have too often concealed, denied, or successfully suppressed. And finally, historical veracity. The truth demands that we acknowledge this state-sponsored catastrophe in all its varied aspects and causes to better understand formative events in both California and the state of the United States, the, the way we think about ourselves. If we don't understand this, we won't truly understand ourselves as a nation. I encourage everybody who's listening to get out there and grab a copy of your book, An American Genocide, the United States and the California Indian Catastrophe. Benjamin Madley, thank you so much for being on Grow Big Always. A big thanks to Ben. If you haven't yet gone to growbigalways.com, you'll find a ton of great episodes there, but also on the bottom of each page, a way to sign up and get a email every single Monday that tells you who's coming up next, reminds you that there's a new episode, uh, gives you the opportunity to share that episode, which is something that we love because it helps spread the word and you guys are the only marketing that we have. To all those who are a huge supporter of Grow Big Always and along with us on this journey, thanks for listening.